morning, church family. Once again, I am uh, traveling out of the country. I'll be in Europe. And so, in fact, right now on Sunday, I am on my way. I'm traveling now to be there. I will be um, a part of a new training center for missionaries. So I'll have the opportunity to, to speak to some of them and to teach in that, that way, but also get, get to learn about what they are doing in this training center to help make God's name known in all the earth. But don't worry. Uh, of course, you are in good hands as Jerry Welch, our family discipleship pastor, is preaching from God's word today as we continue studying in the book of Exodus. So pay close attention to what God has to say through his word and through Jerry. Good morning. It's good to see all of you today. It's been a wonderful time of worship already this morning, and we are so glad that all of you have chosen to join us this morning. It is my privilege to be able to open the Word with you today. We are, as Chad mentioned, continuing our study of the book of Exodus. And so if you'll open your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 21. Um, we spent, if you weren't with us uh, during the summer, you missed uh, some really good sermons. You can go back and listen to those. We walked slowly through uh, the Ten Commandments, uh, and so that's in Exodus chapter 20. And as you can see, we haven't made it too much farther uh, past that. Um, but uh, yeah, we're going to continue uh, our study in, in a new section of Scripture that follows the Ten Commandments. We're all familiar with the Ten Commandments. We've heard those. Um, but then what happens in the sections that follow, the chapters that follow that, um, or an explanation uh, for this new nation of Israel for how to apply those Ten Commandments and how to put them into practice. And so we'll begin by looking, turn with me, go to Exodus chapter 21, and we'll start in verse 1, all right? It says, now these are the rules that you shall set before them. And I'm going to stop right there. Because this is important. This is one of those little verses of Scripture that if we're not careful, we could easily skip right over, move on about our business, and just consider it, you know, just a few words on a page. Not a big deal. But I want to make a point as we begin, because I think this is important for how we read the entire rest of the passage, okay? And so point number one today, if you're taking notes, is we are accountable to God. Okay, I think that's key. I think we need to know that. It's pretty important to note that our God did not hide his laws from us. Yahweh, our God, he is not capricious and he does not hide from us his standards. And so when it says that these are the rules that you are to set before them, he is giving the command that these are the rules that we're supposed to know. Consider this, the Egyptian laws. Now, uh, the Israelites had just come out of slavery in Egypt where they had been for hundreds of years. And despite an extensive system of laws, historians have not been able to find a bunch of copies of those Egyptian laws, probably because those laws were not copied down. They were not given to the people. The people, in other words, were held accountable for laws that they may or may not have even been aware of. And that happened a lot in ancient civilizations, as you can imagine. But our God, Yahweh, is saying here, let, he lets us know what we're accountable for, that we're accountable to him, that he is just, that he will judge, but he is also loving and he is good. Our accountability is made clear throughout all of Scripture that God is in charge. 
He's in charge of the whole thing. The laws that we will study, we started some last week with Chad as we looked at worship, specifically studying the altars and what's going on there, were designed to help the Israelites form a God-honoring community. They have been slaves, like I said, for hundreds of years, and now they're a self-governing people group. They need to learn how to live in harmony with God and with each other. And God, in his great mercy, is bringing order to chaos. I love that. I love bringing order. That's like my life mission, bringing order to chaos. I love that. Some call it organization. Some call it OCD. I call it bringing order to chaos, and I think it's beautiful. And it's obviously something that our God does for us as well, so it's a good thing. Amen? I got a few of you. Thank you very much. All right. Anyway, that was a side sermon. Um, but yeah, we see where God is bringing order to chaos through a series of laws that establish the order for their community. So in this section of Exodus, we see God graciously guiding the Israelites with laws that are good, that are right, that are fair, that honor him. He knows how to do life, right? He made us. He created us. He knows how to do this correctly. He made life, and so he gives them laws that are good for them to follow. Last week in Exodus chapter 20, the last section of that, we addressed their worship. So today, we're going to move on to some other concerns, all right? And you will see as you look, if you're reading the heading in your Bible, that yes, Chad left me with this passage. Uh, and I am so excited actually because I told him, number one, thank you for trusting me with such an interesting passage. Um, but I'm really excited because I believe this passage of scripture is important for us and it reveals to us some key things about our God and about how we are to live together that I think are incredibly important. So I consider it on a privilege, but we got a lot to do because we got a lot of verses to cover. So let's go. Look at verse two. All right. We're moving so fast here, right? When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out for nothing. So wait a minute. What? Did we just read that right? Look back at your words. The word slave is in the Bible. It is listed. It is mentioned in the Bible. And if we're not careful, like if we read this just at face value, it seems that the Bible is advocating slavery. We have to wonder, is the Bible in favor of slavery? Let's be honest. Throughout history, there have been people, even pastors and religious leaders, sadly, who have used these verses and others like it in the Bible to condone the practice of slavery. I'll go ahead and give you a spoiler alert where we're going with this. That's not okay. Okay, that's not what's happening. That's not what's going on. What these people did was wrong in trying to justify slavery. They were dead wrong, but just hang on with me because we're going to come back to that in just a few minutes, okay? Because I think there's some important principles we need to notice first to help us understand that and how I can prove that's true. So my second point for today, I told you we're flying, right? Second point for the day is how we read the Bible matters. How we read the Bible matters. It is good to read the Bible, amen? We should read the Bible, but I would tell you it also matters how we read the Bible. I think we want to consider something as we're reading that we call perspective. I had the privilege of being able to talk to our college students and our career college and career group last week um, about the power of perspective as we are looking at God's Word. We should not read the Bible imposing our own biases or tainted by our own ideas. Instead, we should come, when we come to a difficult passage like this one, where we're like, okay, does it say what I think it says? How do we deal with that? 
then we should consider the totality of Scripture because Scripture is the best interpreter of Scripture. So when you get to a difficult passage, you need to ask yourself this question. What is the message that we get from the whole Scripture, from the whole Bible, from all of it? We've got to consider the whole even in this one verse. The Bible does not contradict itself. I've heard it said before that when we come to passages that are hard to understand, and here's a principle to remember, the passages that are difficult or obscure should then be uh, interpreted based on passages that are clearly understood or easily understood so that we can know those and use those to interpret the things that are more difficult. Okay, So when you come to a difficult passage, remember to go back to what you know is true, to what God has clearly spoken, and let that form the basis by which we read those difficult passages. Really quick, I want to talk about two truths that will help us to do this. Okay, Two things that will help us, and you just jot these down, um, when it comes to these difficult passages. We talked about these last week in our college and career group. One is, we need to remember that God is good. God is good. Throughout Scripture, we see this time and time again. I was going to ask you to raise your hands, so I'm not going to ask you to do that. But we're reading through um, the Bible together as a church. There's a Bible reading plan. There are bookmarks out here. You can get it on your phone. Um, and we're reading through, and we just finished. We're almost done with Lamentations in the Old Testament. We, we, right before that, we finished reading through the book of Jeremiah, which was 52 chapters, I believe, and, and, and went on for a very long time. And so we stayed there for a while. And I think the book of Jeremiah is a beautiful picture to remind us uh, that God is good, um, that even though uh, he had warned the children of Israel time and time again, they rebelled against him over and over and over and basically prostituted themselves to false gods. And they turned their back willingly and knowingly against, uh, against God. But because God is just, the book of Jeremiah tells us that God pronounced judgment on them. He did judge the people of Israel, and it was rough. And Jeremiah had the... Um, the very unfun job of being the proclaimer of this truth, that God would judge, that he would punish. But here's what's interesting. Even in God's wrath against them, in Jeremiah chapter 3, so very early on in the book, God says that he will not be angry with them forever. So right at the beginning of this prophetic book of doom and gloom, God says there is coming a time of redemption and restoration. He is preserving a remnant because they deserve it? Not at all. <laughs> because God is good. Because that's who he is. It's because of who he is. The Bible is full of passages like this that just happen to be one that we've been reading together recently. Second truth I want you to remember as we go through this quickly is that God's word is true. So God is good and God's word is true. How you read the Bible matters. You need to remember those two things. Paul says this in the New Testament in his letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We may not always like what we read in scripture, but we can rest assured that his word is true. It can be trusted, and it contains what we need. So let's look again at verse 2. Considering that perspective, God is good, his word is true. Verse 2 again. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh year he shall go out free for nothing. 
So let's pick that verse apart just a little bit. It's too important for us to skip over. When you buy a Hebrew slave is how it starts in the beginning. Notice that he is talking about slavery that is happening within their community. Okay, He is talking about Hebrews owning other Hebrews. This is not slavery that is based on race or ethnicity. He is talking about something that transpired between fellow Hebrews. So in order to understand what's going on, we really have to do some research and figure out what on earth would have happened within this Hebrew community where one Hebrew might have been enslaved to the other. Remember, they just came out of slavery. First of all, we need to know that here in the original Hebrew, this word is ebed, the word for slave. I hope I got close to pronouncing that right, which means servant. And it designates a range of social and economic roles. The SV Study Bible says it like this. A servant could be someone who agreed to work for someone else for pay or to repay a debt. In some cases, he might have agreed to work for someone for the rest of his life. A servant could also be someone captured in a war, made to serve someone else, or someone sold into slavery. Readers have to pay attention to each and every situation to be able to understand. So, what would bring a Hebrew to be enslaved to another Hebrew? From looking back at historical documents and seeing the the context of what is going on is more than likely because they owed a debt that they could not pay. They needed to borrow some money. They needed to deal with this. And so, they would sell themselves as a bond servant in order to pay off their debt. Poor and destitute people might also sometimes sell themselves into slavery in order to get food and clothing and shelter and protection for themselves or for their family. In this passage, the slavery that is being described and that will be regulated as we continue to read through this passage is relational. And we're going to see it's not harsh or cruel. He sets some guidelines about that. And we'll see that it could even be used to restore the dignity or the agency of the person who became a bond servant. Other cultures around the Hebrew people at this time were known to be harsh and cruel. People who could not pay their debts might very well pay that debt by losing their lives legally in those cultures. Or in, like it was in Egypt. They could simply be taken and subject to very horrible conditions. Remember, the Israelites had just come out of slavery in Egypt for hundreds of years. Egyptian slavery was involuntary. It had no end. People were put to work in work gangs and were reduced to an anonymous mass. Slaves were depersonalized and dehumanized. Pharaoh had the power of life and death over them with a snap of a finger. They had no property rights, no Sabbath rest, and no freedom to worship. This type of slavery was wrong and was exactly the kind of slavery that God was trying to prevent with these laws. Sadly, Egyptian slavery reminds me a lot of the kind of slavery that comes to my mind when I think of slavery in America, in our context. Slavery in America consisted of a transatlantic trade resulting in lifelong chattel slavery. People were stolen from their homes, separated from their families, stripped of all of their rights and personal property. They were beaten, they were abused, they were treated as less than human. Let me say clearly and unequivocally, this type of slavery was wrong. 
It was wrong, it is wrong, and it will always be wrong. And let's be honest, the church, the white church in particular, has not always gotten this right. In fact, there are some very well-known historical pastors and preachers who have used verses like Exodus 21, like we find here, to condone or to even try to legitimize chattel slavery as something that was ordained by God. Even closer to home, some of our predecessors who are a part of the founding of the Southern Baptist Convention were wrong. They got it wrong. I don't understand how they got it wrong. I don't know why they got it wrong. They got it wrong. Terribly, horribly wrong. And in no way does, nor did the Bible ever condone this type of barbaric treatment of people, especially not based on race or ethnicity. Any racial prejudice or hatred or fear or bigotry that is descended from this barbaric practice is wrong, is evil, and will always be wrong. Early on in the book of Genesis, God spoke of all nations being blessed through Abraham. And then in the book of, so this is the beginning, and then in the book of Revelation, we see a time in heaven when all races, all tribes, all tongues will come together to worship God around the throne. In the New Testament, we see the diversity of the church, both racially and ethnically, as an apologetic to the world. That's why unity through diversity is one of our values at Colonial Heights. We know that what unites us is greater than what divides us. When the world sees us working together, loving one another like brothers and sisters, despite our different races, different ethnicities, different socioeconomic levels, different genders, male and female, different ends of the political spectrum, that's when the world sees the miracle of God that supersedes all of our differences. So I believe this diversity that God has created in our midst is on purpose and it's to be used as an apologetic to the world to let them see that what Jesus has done is real. The way that he has changed us is real and it matters. And we have a great opportunity to stand in contrast to the world around us by the way that we love one another. Jesus said they will know us by our love. Speaking of the love that we will have for one another. So get this. Look again at the rest of this verse. It says, when you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh, he shall go free for nothing. Notice, in the, by the grace of God and his consistency throughout Scripture, Genesis 2 talks about how God instituted the Sabbath rest. It says, so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all of his work that he had done in creation. Now, what God is doing in these verses, he is continuing that theme of Sabbath rest, and he is applying it to the poor and to the destitute, and he gives permission for them to work it off for six years. But then he makes it very clear that in the seventh year, regardless of whether or not they paid off their debt, he does not address that. They get to go free for nothing because they're not to be owned in perpetuity by their master. God is good and his word is true. And so that leads me to my third point. Third point. That God has given all human beings value and dignity. 
And we're going to see that over and over and over throughout this passage, through this part of Exodus. God has given all human beings value and dignity. As we read the next 30 verses, it's going to become clearer and clearer to us that God values all people. Look at verses 3 and 4. We'll go ahead and jump into those. If he, it's talking about the slave here, comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. So what? We just did it again. We were doing good. Verse 3 was good, right? We're all good with verse 3. Look back at verse 4 and you're like, what just happened? How did we just get back to that? It seems like we're about to undo this whole idea of value and dignity in people. And sometimes... We can get angry with God for what looks like harsh treatment. Or we can remember that right perspective that we have, that God is good, his word is true, and so let's dig into it a little deeper. Verse 4, if you do the research, you will find that there are actually several potential ways that you can consider what's being prescribed here. Some historians and translators believe what was happening was actually reducing the risk for the wife and children. Remember, this was an agrarian society. People could, uh, their fortunes really could rise and fall based on a single crop each year. So the man who sold himself into slavery, even upon his release, would likely have to take some time to rebuild his livelihood. He would be susceptible to the elements and might struggle for several years to be able to feed himself, much less his family. Some historians believe that the wife and kids would have been better cared for under their master and less susceptible to starvation. Um, and to this bitter struggle. Most scholars also believe that the men who were freed were not forced to sever ties with their families, but instead it was a, a servitude that they were following through with. But by staying in service to the master, the wife and children would be cared for if the husband was unable to become self-sustaining. Look at the next set of verses. Verse 5 says, But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. That's disgusting, but okay. Conditions could be such that this man who is a bondservant, a slave, could want to stay. Voluntarily, He could choose conditions there over trying to go out and make it on his own. Maybe because the master was that good to him. Maybe because they had become family. Maybe, I don't know. But the Bible says there that he may say, I would rather stay. However, if he made this choice, notice that a permanent mark would be put on him. It's a weird thing, right? A permanent mark that would be, especially through the year like that. Provision is made for him to stay, but spiritually, it's important for us to know that this was not God's intent for men to be enslaved to anyone. Remember, he was supposed to go free. God sent his son to make us free. Jesus said in John 8, 31, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free free. Very good. Paul also said in Galatians 5.1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit to the yoke of slavery. The New Testament uses an image of slavery and Jesus came to set us free from slavery to sin and self, 
slavery to pride and arrogance, slavery to temptation and fear. He came to set us free. But we may choose to stay enslaved, right? We may make a decision to remain enslaved to fear and doubt and stress and worry, pride and arrogance, sin and self. Even in this command, we can see in verses 5 and 6, as he is describing what is happening there, we can see God pointing to the gospel and preparing us to be set free, to be a people who are no longer enslaved to sin and self, but instead are partaking in freedom. Look back at verse 7. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no rights to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as a daughter. Verse 10. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment or money. What? Here we go again with one of these verses, a set of verses here where we could get easily confused. Are we really talking about selling our daughters into slavery? Again, we've got to remember our perspective. God is good and his word is true, so let's start with that perspective, dig into it. We need to also remember that during this time, most civilizations would have considered women to be property. Selling daughters would have been a common practice. There is evidence that poor families would sell their daughters in order to pay the family's debt or to provide for the daughter's well-being or even to improve her chances of getting married. But if we pay attention to the words here, we see that God is actually counteracting that practice in many ways, especially the horrible things that would be done in other cultures as they devalued women overall. In what we may consider a very strange way, I agree, God is providing protection for women and possibly even a way out of poverty. And he's also, in doing so, he's setting up some guidelines that say it is not okay to treat her as property. Notice when it says in verse 8, who has designated her for himself. That is describing the master taking her as a wife. Verse 8 also says, if she does not please her master, he, the master, should let her be redeemed. In other words, he cannot sell her to other people. In verse 9, if he decides to give her to his son to marry, he must treat her as a daughter, no longer as a slave. According to verse 10, if he marries her and then takes on another wife, he is not allowed to abuse her in any way by diminishing her food, clothing, or marital rights. If he does abuse her, verse 11 clearly states that she gets to go free for nothing. Notice this is a description of polygamy, not a prescription. There's a difference. God is not prescribing a polygamous relationship. He is describing a sinful practice that happened often in their midst. But he is setting up some guidelines here to make sure that the value and the dignity of even these women were taken seriously. Let's continue to read. Uh, in verses 12 and following. And look at how 
and, and really consider, as we read that, before we do that, we need to really remember that in these other cultures where women were devalued and were treated as property and, and were given no rights, all those kind of things were taken away, all that was done legally in other civilizations. But God, in helping to establish um, Israel with this new set of laws, gave women dignity, and even poor destitute women who had been sold into slavery were given more dignity than they had ever been afforded before. So read in verses 12 through 32, in the last part of this, we're going to look at some personal injury laws. And I realize there are going to be things that you may still have questions about as we read through these passages or even the ones that we have already read. And that's okay because God can handle our questions and it's okay for us to talk about those in community um, and so even though we're going quickly through a passage and I'm giving some quick answers to some things that I've spent hours studying this past week, know that you too can do some digging and find answers on some of these things that you may struggle with all along the way. So we're looking at some personal injury laws coming up. I call them that. I don't know if that's really a good term, but that's what I call it in verses 12 through 32. And these laws were to be given to the judges of Israel to work themselves out in a court of law. These were not to provide license for people to take justice into their own hands, but instead they were laws meant to provide a framework for the judicial system of this new nation of Israel. And we're going to go quickly, so don't freak out. Verse 12, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death, but if he did not lie and wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you should take him uh, from the altar that he may die. In these verses, God tells us, how to practically live out commandment number five, you shall not murder. God acknowledges the importance of examining motives. Other cultures at this time did not consider motives. A person's life could be taken regardless of their motive. But notice here that God acclaims the sanctity of life, all life. He says that willful premeditated murder is punishable by death. Look at verses 15 and 17. I'm purposely skipping 16. I'll come back to it. 15 says, whoever strikes his father and mother shall be put to death. And then 17, whoever curses his father and mother shall be put to death. Pretty serious punishments, huh? Notice, first of all, these verses clearly address the treatment of both fathers and mothers. Again, God is, God is elevating the dignity and worth of women in this case, he's talking specifically of mothers. In this passage we're reading today, women are mentioned nine times in a direct contrast to the world around them and the practices of the world around them. These verses would have provided practical instruction of how to live out commandment number five. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. The way we treat our parents matters. It matters. They are our authority under God. Paul upholds this in the New Testament in the book of Ephesians. Look at verse 16. God addresses commandment number eight here, thou shalt not steal. He says, whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. It is never okay to steal or kidnap a man or take him against his will. In fact, God says here it is punishable by death. That's severe. God is not kidding. This is yet another way that we know that chattel slavery as we knew it here in the United States was wrong. Men and women were not to be stolen or kidnapped against their will or robbed of their basic human value and dignity that was bestowed on them by their creator. I wish we had learned our lesson. Sadly, today, in 2023, a report of the Global Slavery Index tells us that there are over 50 million people in slavery worldwide. And that includes over 1.1 million 
here in the United States. May we and our world repent and start treating people with the dignity and the value that God ordained for them. Look at verse 18. When men quarrel and one strikes another with a stone or with his fist, and that man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, notice female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave dies a day or two, uh, survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. God is giving the Israelites here some basic rules for justice. In verses 20 and 21, when it talks about being avenged, they're referring to capital punishment, okay? If a slave dies at a master's hand, that master must face capital punishment. It is not okay. The value and dignity of the slave is affirmed. Verse 21, it's tougher to understand, so we must use what we already know to interpret it. According to the verse, if the master beats a slave and he or she lives, and the master does not face capital punishment. This does not condone cruelty or inhumane punishment of slaves, or of anyone for that matter. We've already established that by what is clear in Scripture. This verse does not address that. It simply addresses the capital punishment topic, okay? I can prove it by looking at the next set of verses. Verse 26 says, when a man strikes the eye of a slave, male or female, notice female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. In other words, beating or mistreating a slave was not allowed and was not to be put up with. Verse 22, when men strive together, that means they're fighting, okay? And hit a pregnant woman, again, mentioning women, so that her children come out, and, but there is no harm. The one who hit her shall surely be fine, as the husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judge's term. But there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Notice that in these verses, pregnant women are protected, and so is the unborn child. This isn't a new issue. We see the value and dignity that God gives to all human life, even life in the womb. We also see where unjust punishment is prohibited. In other cultures, a person's life could be demanded for any crime. God set a different rule for his people. This was referred to as the lex talionis. In other words, the law of retaliation, an eye for an eye. No doubt you have heard of that and sometimes probably seen it misused or abused. What God is saying here is that legally, the punishment should fit the crime. It is not okay to take out revenge in your anger and to exact some extreme or exorbitant punishment. As Chad will continue next week to talk about, God creates a system where the punishment fits the crime so that his people can live in harmony with the community. We do not really see evidence in the Hebrew society of punishment being exacted literally like this, where a person who burns someone would be burned necessarily, or that they might lose a hand. But what we do see is that their punishment fit the crime. It was proportionate to the crime. In the New Testament, Jesus addresses the lex talionis like this. He says in the Sermon on the Mount, You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. 
And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Jesus reveals, what he does is he takes this law from the Old Testament and he reveals to us the heart behind it, okay? He calls us away from what the world would claim is rightfully ours and he removes our right to retribution. I remember growing up and hearing people say this famous phrase or famous sentence, I don't get mad I get, you've heard it too. Nope. It's not biblical. What Jesus is telling them is they're setting up their society. And, well, actually, what God was telling them in the Old Testament and now continues to be held true in the New Testament, what Jesus said is we do not have that right to go after people to get even with them. There is law, there is justice, there is punishment, but it is to fit the crime. It is to be proportional and correctly handled by the court of law. We're going to wrap this up. Look at verses 28 through 32. When an ox, this is interesting. When an ox scores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be held liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and his owner has been warned, but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, then the ox shall be stoned, and his owner shall be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give uh, for the... Then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, or daughter, you know that, he shall be dealt with according to the same rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to the master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. Okay, so what's all this stuff about oxen? Did you know the plural of ox is oxen? Okay, just making sure. Side, side note. Um, so what was really going on with the, this auction here is, is uh, the oxen here is that God is addressing something bigger called personal negligence. Meaning that we should take care of things that we know are going on. We're to take responsibility for the health and well-being of other people who are around us. Male and female. We should take responsibility to care for those who are in our community. It is wrong to let others be harmed or their livelihood be taken because we neglected to take care of what we already knew to be a problem. So turning a blind eye is not okay. God's going to hold us accountable if we're aware that there's an issue that we need to take care of. We need to take care of it because we believe in the value and the dignity of our fellow man. So we need to remember three things as we wrap up. We need to remember that we're accountable to God. We need to remember that how we read the Bible matters. And we need to remember that God has given all human beings value and dignity. And so as we come to a time of response today to think about this weird passage of Scripture that Chad gave me to go over with us this morning, that I'm very thankful for the opportunity to have been able to study it and, and to consider it. If you are not yet a follower of Christ, I hope that somehow in these verses you have seen and you have heard of the goodness of God. A God who values you, a God who created you with value and dignity, who loves you. He loves you so much that he was willing to send his only son to pay the price for your sins. Jesus bled and died on a cross to pay the price for your sins so that you would not have to pay for them. He bought you out of slavery. We are enslaved to sin and to self. We are enslaved to all these things that we have no control over, but... 
because of the grace of God, because of the goodness of Jesus, he paid the price so that you and I could be set free. And I would call you to that today, that God is worth following. He is worth digging into his word to understand. He has paid the price for you, and he would love for you to come to him. And so in a few minutes, I'm going to have some friends standing right over here. And if you would like to talk to them about what that means, about how to repent of your sin and to turn from yourself and to trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. We'd love for you to come by and talk to them. Or if you're just going, I'm confused by some of this stuff and I want to talk some more about the other things that are going on, some of them will be glad to either help you with that or point you to someone who can help. And then for those of us who are believers here today, those of us who are followers of Christ, I want to invite us all to examine ourselves. Are we living up to the standard that God has set in how we treat people? Let's be honest. We live in a toxic society where we blame everyone around us for all of our problems, where we judge whole groups of people based on our whims, and where we justify ourselves treating others badly because we claim to have higher moral standards. Yet in the way we treat them, we call all of Christianity into question. Do your social media posts glorify God or do they denigrate your neighbor? Have you gotten caught in the trap of dehumanizing people? Do you look down on people of other races, on immigrants, on people of other genders, or people of other political parties? So maybe this message today is personal. Maybe you need to go and repent and apologize to someone. Maybe you need to repent publicly and ask for forgiveness. Maybe you need to repent and take some steps to live more in line with God's ideals. Maybe you need to repent and ask God to help you find a way to treat everyone you see with the same kind of value and dignity that God gave. So whatever it is that he is convicting all of us to do, let's do it today because we are accountable to him. Stand with me as we sing. Respond as God leads you to respond.